Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientist. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and on this podcast I have long, informal conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. For this episode, I'm really excited to bring you Jan Zika. Dr. Jan Zika works as a researcher at the School of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. And if you're not familiar with him, uh, Yen is a really creative oceanographer. He took his understanding of physics and mathematics, those really basic fundamental building blocks of physics and mathematics, and applied it to oceanography, specifically to things like salinity and transformations in this interesting temperature and salinity space. So he's become really well known for that, and he's also really well known for being uh, really friendly and really uh, just a joy to talk to, just a kind of uh, a really warm and um, open person to be around. So I was really excited to sit down with him and have this conversation. Um, so I, uh, thanks to Yan for stopping by and for taking time out of your busy schedule during your European tour recently to have a chat with me. This episode, we, we had a, a really nice time. We had a really nice conversation. I found that we ended up talking about more kind of personal things. We didn't talk about science as much as I might have thought we would. So if you're expecting an episode chock full of science, that's not this one. We don't have a ton of science content in there in the end. We do talk about it, but it ended up being very person-focused and and sometimes really just fun and kind of silly, which I love. I think that, that, was, really, that was really cool. So... I think some of the episodes just uh, come out like that sometimes. And because I'm trying to keep these open and natural and conversational, then uh, yeah, that's how that's how some of them are going to go. If you'd like to know more about Yen and his work, look him up on Twitter at Yen D. Zika. So that's J-A-N-D Zika, Z-I-K-A. And there he's got links to his, his website. So you can see some of his his work, some of his paper there, papers, some of his papers, <laughs> anyway. Okay, so I really don't want to take a lot more time. I want to get into it just as quickly as possible. For updates on the podcast, at ClimateSciPod on Twitter, I'm at Dan Jones Ocean. And with that, let's just go ahead and get into this conversation with Jan Zika, a mathematics lecturer at the University of New South Wales in Sydney and a very creative oceanographer. Here we go. Uh, that's something we used to have on my wall or on the wall at our old place. We had a big tube map for my for my kid, and yeah. you know he loved. He kind of memorized a lot of it and got to know a lot of the stations, yeah. and he memorized the lines. And yeah. so that's something that when we get to go down there, he really. He enjoys kind of you know re-engaging with that. Yeah, I made a tube map once. Um, for the, we had when I lived in London, we had this thing called the London Ocean Group, mm. and I, I think I was like I had an operation Rock. or something, and I was like I, I was probably high on some sort of drug or something from the painkiller or something like that, and I I just was playing around, and I drew this like ocean tube map. Because mm. so, I used, I wanted to make a logo for our group yeah. with the the roundel, which is like the tube logo. 
and I had like London Ocean Group, and then I had like this tube map of the dig it up actually, but it's like a tube map of all the ocean currents, like the different not all the ocean currents, nice. but like the sort of surface and mid and deep layers of the ocean as like as tube tubes. lines with oh, stations man. and things. I want to see that. <laughs> The, so you had stations, like yeah. yeah, stations were like I don't know different like, parts of the yeah different like North entry Atlantic. points like you know upwelling downwelling and yeah uh, sections. Oh, that's awesome! And then that frees you up to. Um, I mean, that was one of the purposes of the original tube map, right? Was yeah. to say, well, let's not worry too much about exactly where they are, yeah, yeah. you know, relative to each other. Yeah, let's just talk about how you get from one place to another. Yeah, yeah, and that yeah. that lets you put it out like a schematic so this was yeah part it of, sort of reduces know. the information yeah i think generally that's it's actually it's actually quite a deep concept yeah that is crosses over from like science into design is that you're you're reducing the information down into what's essentially important for the practical purpose that you yeah. have in mind yeah absolutely you're yeah stripping away the irrelevant bits mm. that you need for your kind of conceptual model mm. And when you're on the tube, yeah, it is irrelevant if one tube is slightly farther north yeah. than, you yeah. know. It's, no, they're not all in a straight line. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's fine. That's okay. Yeah. And that doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a higher, it's a level of abstraction, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. The people become, people are often a bit hostile almost to abstraction at first. Like, you can't do that. That's, mm. you know, but then... Once they get used to it, they realize how useful it is, and I think that's a good example of it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said that, because, like, there's something that I feel like you're good at in oceanography, <laughs> is abstracting away from, like, well, let's let's just get down to the most essential yeah. you know, things that we need to understand, where, you know, in your case, it's a lot of these kind of thermodynamic diagrams, you know, yeah. where there's just two axes, right? There's temperature, potential temperature and salinity. Yeah. And you're thinking about how, you know, water transforms from one type to yeah. another, kind Absolutely. of regardless of where it is on the planet, you know, yeah. whether it's near the surface or in the interior or in the Indian or the Atlantic. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you, you've kind of done that with oceanography, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like you have. No, yeah. I did, yeah. I did, I, yeah I, I, since my PhD, I'd always give these presentations and I, I'd ask people to place put themselves in the sort of context of a water parcel and I, I wouldn't ask them well how do you get from a to b i would say how do you how do you warm up or how do you cool down or how do you get more salty or how do you get mm. fresher mm. and it's still a, a, a you can always think of it as still being a movement but it's, a, it's you're not moving to a new place you're moving to a new state you know mm. you're not moving to a new location you're moving to a new state yeah um abstract state space yeah yeah, yeah. And, um, sort, of, sort of a phase or a state space where your temperatures yeah your temperature and salinity are the things that determine your phase yeah no, yeah. yeah and it's, it's it's a very old idea actually because if you if you look at thermodynamics so the idea of a, a carno cycle or so the first people that were looking at the um trying to understand engines like how engines work and how to make make trains run efficiently on coal they thought about the cycle of of pressure and temperature effectively yeah. and how to extract the most power from an engine by 
figuring out where to add the heat at what, at what pressure because basically the cycle of a, a piston engine is you, you, you warm up some gas, you know, it changes its pressure, it drives a piston, you cool it down, the piston relaxes and, you, and, and, and the cycle continues. And you don't really care that much about the shape of your piston or the size of your piston. You actually care about this, that air mm. or that fluid and, and its cycle in terms of its temperature and its pressure. And that turns out what matters for the efficiency of, a, of, a, of, a, of an engine. Yeah. The heat engine. Um, so I kind of, I guess when I started doing, applying this in oceanography, I, I, I'd done physics undergraduate, so it didn't seem that, that abstract. Or, but um, I was sort of surprised that that sort of approach hadn't really been applied much in the climate science. Yes. Climate science. Well, not, people hadn't really tried to take the data that we're measuring and actually map it into that space. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I'm sure. I want to tell you something. I'm sure I'm not the first person who's said this, and it sounds consistent with what you just said. Like, I remember seeing a talk of yours where you were talking about the 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 salinity kind of freshwater budget, yeah. and you had reduced it to some very nice integrals and some very nice budgets and some these you know basic physical concepts. <laughs> and I looked at that and I'm like. Why, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> I know, I know calculus. Why didn't I? Like, <laughs> it's like a, it's like the ultimate goal of any any presentation. Yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy with that. It's to make yeah. people think it's so obvious. Yeah. 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 <laughs> How has nobody done this? <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. That's like that's um, it's it's nice. It's really nice to be able to make that kind of contribution, and it's like it's it's inspiring to see it. And and I do also have that feeling of, of yeah, well, where where did that come from? Like it was sitting right there, like all the pieces, all the yeah. ingredients of you know, reducing the ocean into that simple conceptual framework were yeah. just sitting there, you know, waiting for uh, apparently you to come along <laughs> and and put them together, which is really cool. Um, yeah, yeah, it's so, just a question of like, yeah, I mean. There, were, there had been a bit of work in this area. I mean, it was amazing, for example, you were talking before about this idea of looking at the ocean as a cycle in temperature, potential temperature and salinity coordinates. When we wrote that paper, I, I realized the reason, the reason I did it was because I'd been inspired, as I said, by my, my own physics training, but also other people had, had started to do these sort of things. So I knew yeah. it was possible and they'd done it in just in temperature or just in salinity or latitude and temperature. So I knew that these, you could do these things. And I'd been particularly inspired by this group in Sweden who'd been doing similar things, thinking about the thermodynamics of the ocean. I submit this paper, which, you know, I was, you know, it's like I'd been thinking about for, for it occupied my brain for like two or three years. I finally get, get mm. it done, submit it. And then a month later, I get asked to review what looked like exactly the same paper, Ooh, and it was written by these these <laughs> these these Swedes. And I was at first, I was like, "Oh my God, someone's." Um, at first, I thought it was copied because it was <laughs> we'd actually had the same dot points, the same. And it turned out that the reverse had happened to them. That they they were just ready to submit their work, and they were asked to review a paper by a journal that was my paper. It's your paper, and oh, they immediately within a few hours sent their up their most up-to-date draft to the editor and said this is crazy but 
yeah. we've actually done this at those similar figures but with completely different data. There's no way they could and it turned oh. out that the idea was was just sitting there. It was like hanging there. Yeah. And so you know, many months or years afterwards, I actually became more and more happy that this had happened because you, you realize that it's, it, it needed to, it was sort of science that needed to come out. Um, and it turned out we worked, then worked together with atmospheric people to look at similar things that hadn't been done in the atmosphere. And again, there were people that, once we found the right people that could, could draw the right connections and it flowed really smoothly because mm. they kind of already, it was all, they had all the pieces there and they, in a way they just needed to know that, yeah, they just needed to be sort of reassured that, that it would, it could be done and, and, and it happened. Yeah, because that is, you know, when you're trying to kind of pick a new research direction, I mean, that can be a little intimidating because you don't know if it's going to work out. Yeah. And, if you're somebody who's already kind of, I guess, established and you have time on your hands, that might not be quite as scary because mm. you might think, well, if I waste two months on this, it doesn't doesn't matter. But, you know, for an early career person, it's kind of feels intimidating, I mm. guess, because you, you're not sure if it's going to work out or not. I guess you just have to, to kind of trust that it's going to be useful <laughs> in some way, <laughs> in some capacity. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was quite lucky because I had a, the support of, someone I'd met, he was, I think he was like a secondary supervisor during my, my thesis. He was like my university contact during my thesis. I did my PhD at a research organization called CSIRO. And, um, but I was part of the University of New South Wales and my, the, the guy who had helped me with that, we'd had lots of discussions over the years and he, and he had, he had a, like a bit of spare funding that he had flexibility in. And I, I came to him and I said, um, you know, I, 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 this is what I want to do, and he he was able to sort of support me for it. Only I mean, it only took a year in the end, thankfully, but he had that year of funding. Um, that was for this paper that you yeah, ended up submitting. Yeah. yeah, that was Matthew England in in at UNSW, and um, and he I guess he he saw it as being potentially really useful, so he was willing to hmm. let me take that risk, um, and and it had been buzzing around in my brain I'd been working in France before that and I'd been yeah do, doing really interesting research relating to the Southern Ocean but I'd had this these thoughts you know about these different coordinate systems and hmm. things like that and so and I think I'd convinced myself that they w- it would work <laughs> but, it, but the idea had come up many years before when I was a PhD student actually yeah, yeah. applying some basic thermodynamic concepts to yeah. oceanography yeah. yeah yeah tns space yeah. and transformations in that tns space yeah. so you had like you had some support from a you know more senior person yeah. who thought yeah who, so that so that was good because uh it's you kind of could use that person's instinct to you know bolster your yeah. confidence a little Absolutely, bit and yeah. to say okay i can spend some time on this i can yeah. can go down this road i don't yeah i don't have to stress out right this second about you know finding more funding i can yeah, yeah. so i guess um because part of what i wanted to talk to you about was that kind of you know the conditions that you need to to have that kind of creativity and mm. to let some of these ideas come out and to you know, I was wondering if you would do if you do anything to kind of get into that space or yeah. like let yourself be into that space because I think what I've found is um, if I'm if I'm stressed out 
if I'm, you know, worried about kind of, you know, personal things, if I'm worried about contracts and if I'm mm -hmm. worried about, then it's, it's harder. It's harder mm -hmm. to like let my guard down and relax and just like play with an idea. Yeah. Cause yeah. that's, you need to play, right? You need to like, yeah, you, yeah you just need to like have fun with yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes. It's more fun than any, for me, than any iPhone game or anything. So. <laughs> Pen and paper on the train, you know. Um, yeah, I think sometimes I, I, I've, for me, pl the playing side's always come really freely. I think the hard part is, is finding something that is simple enough to be elegant or useful or, cause I, I think there's a, there's, you, you can, you can do things creative, well, Maybe, maybe there's some essence of creativity that produces something that's elegant and useful, but it's very easy for me, for me personally to, to come up with ideas and to play with things. But it takes a long time, a lot of effort to, and, and a bit of discipline to filter those ideas until you you've, you've find some things that fit together and make a simple, elegant creative idea or a new and so it's, it's one thing to have new ideas a lot of research is new but new can be adding complexity to things uh, which is fine you know if you're an engineer and you're trying to like design a satellite and you need some high precision and every bit of precision helps then you you tend to add complexity you add details um, but in other areas you can add details and that you lose sort of clarity um, you lose understanding. Um, you can add more sort of modules to a climate model, um, and it can help you get certain accuracy in a certain situation. But sometimes I worry that in, in other situations you actually want a simpler climate model that just captures what's going on, like a bit like the um, the tube map we were talking about yeah. earlier. You can make a map of London and you can add more and more detail, but at some point the map is not as is not useful. You can't, you know, a regular person can't read a sophisticated map that has the the sewage system and you know, and so for a certain purpose you want to simplify things, and that that's that's hard. Yeah, that, yeah. that that takes you have to yeah you have to back an idea and and but then spend a lot of time working through until that creative idea is 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 is, is simple yeah. yeah you want to distill it down mm. into only what you kind of care about and only the part of it that that is important for the question you're thinking of and i guess that's you have to know what kind of question you're thinking yeah, of yeah 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 to even understand how you want to simplify whatever system it is you're looking yeah. at um so i guess with the ocean you can start with some questions like where's the heat going to go? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, if the planet's going to warm up, where's that heat going to get deposited? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And how does it get from being in the atmosphere, you know, down into the interior, wherever it's going to go. And I could see a tube map style approach being really useful for that yeah. because you can, you can say, well, this is, yeah, the, the, this is the train station where the heat, you know, gets into the ocean. Mm. And then the deep convection sites could be, you know, that's where the, heat kind of penetrates into the interior into the thermocline yeah. and like mode water formation sites yeah. that's where it gets down into the interior yeah and then yeah. it's carried by regular regular trains traveling you know to different parts of the ocean yeah so it's, um and i and i yeah some of the work i've been doing recently um 
actually exploits that idea you 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 take the instead of saying where 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 in the ocean is it warm you say okay i'm going to think about the ocean as has, having these layers having these these water masses these these bodies of water that they can sort of jiggle around because mm-hmm. you can have waves traveling through the ocean that move things up and down um but what I want to know is how is heat traveling within those those moving layers? And it, it's very, very similar to that. We kind of break it up into a minimum number of these layers, these water masses. We, we kind of see how they're all connected. And then we say, okay, well, what if we put something in here? Where does it travel to? Um, and it's actually been quite useful because although if you, if you just go out into the ocean and measure the temperature, a latitude, a longitude, and a depth. So you so you get into the middle of the South Pacific, you're between New Zealand and Chile, north of Antarctica. You measure the temperature at two points in time. It could be warmer, it could be colder, um, because ocean, there's ocean currents. They're they're shifting around. They're moving things up and down. There's waves moving through. Um, but what we what we found is that if you go to that place and you say, okay, this water mass that I'm measuring, this, this water that's between this range of density or this range of temperature and salinity, there's more of it mm. than there was before. Um, and in fact, there's more of it in the whole Pacific. Mm. So if there's more of it, it, it can't be just because some wave came through and, and wiggled things around because that's not cre- going to create more or destroy more. So there's more of so it's like it's like having these train tracks that are wiggling around, but you're saying, well, there's more people on the train, you know. <laughs> um, so mm. there's something happening. It must be peak hour, and, and it's really peak hour for heat in the in the ocean because we're finding all these water masses that there's more warm ones and there's less cold ones, mm. and so there's clearly heat moving into these water masses, um, and yeah. and. And yeah, and that, that viewpoint is helping us and it's helping us to sort of filter out the signals that are that are still interesting for different problems. If you're a fish, you care about the temperature right where you are, right? Mm. So it's a different problem. But if you're, a, if you're just thinking about trying to trace climate change and understand slow climate change, um, you kind of need to filter out the different natural variability that's happening year to year or month to month or decade to decade yeah because like you said the heat it can make the individual water masses thicker you know it can it can um and you can change the rate at which you're kind of forming some of these water masses at Mm -hmm. the surface yeah so i guess that's the rate at which kind of people are leaving one station and going to another yeah and um yeah and when does the station get crowded right the station gets crowded when the rate at which people are coming in is higher than the rate at which people are, are yeah. going out. <laughs> yeah. And so if that is happening in terms of heat, there's more yeah. heat coming in than yeah. it's going out, yeah. then more heat will pile up, you know, yeah, in, in exactly. that water mass, yeah. um, which could change the volume of the whole water mass, or it could just change the temperature also, you know, uh, or it could just change the temperature. You get more people jammed into the same size, size station. Yeah. Um, I don't know how far we want to take this no. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of bizarre because it's like this, this tube network that's sort of wiggling around. So yeah, I think everybody would be really seasick if they were real yeah. trains because they'd be like, 
<laughs> moving up and down with the waves and <laughs> yeah this was the first the first idea for Eurostar yeah. it got shot down we'll just have a free floating tube <laughs> going yeah, through so the English channel Elon Musk about his in, in our ocean hyperloop yeah. or something <laughs> just let it move around it'll be fine <laughs> like, just, uh, yeah, uh, you don't know which way gravity's going <laughs> the tube's going up it's going down it's going sideways it's moving around um yeah, it, it could work. It would be horrible to write on, but it could. Yeah. <laughs> it could work. Um, yeah. So, do you? Did you grow up in Australia? Yeah, I'm from yeah. Hobart, Tasmania. Oh right. Okay. Same as Andrew Myers. Who? Yeah, yeah. He's also here at, at Bass. Yeah, we um, we 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 didn't know each other actually until we were both PhD students, and although we kind of went we went to like. We both went to like government schools, but just happened to, even though we lived near each other, we happened to, they happened to, they were on either side of the city. And mm. so, we, um, and we just, our paths didn't cross, but then since then we, we've worked together. Yeah. Mm. Quite yeah. Funny. yeah. What, what were your uh, folks up to there? If you don't mind me. Oh asking. yeah. So my, uh, my father is an artist. He works at the university as a lecturer or he used to, he's retired now. He, he does sort of, um, abstract painting and sort of relief uh, he uses sort of wood paints pieces of wood and then creates sort of mostly geometric or decorative kind of artworks out of layers of painted mm. wood oh nice um, okay sort of inspired by different decorative scales so very different to I don't know physics but similar in a way I guess in a sense yeah. And, um, I just, my, yeah oh sorry I was just thinking about that yeah art art like well three-dimensional artists they like try to make a physical object that makes you respond in some way yeah and well there must be there's kind of an abstraction in there yeah. as well right I, I, I'm certainly you know? probably more attract, attracted to abstraction than mm. I would have been if I wasn't brought up by a, an artist or more comfortable in abstraction than yeah, yeah. I guess that could normalize it for you, yeah, right? Yeah, so yeah. that's what my dad does. <laughs> Relax. It's just my dad. There was a, at the. I don't know if you've you've been, but here in Cambridge, uh, Kettle's Yard. There's, uh-huh. there's a house. Have uh-huh. you been to the house before? It's a good Cambridge thing to do if you've got okay. if you've got some time. Yeah. So they have a, a whole house that's a collection of cottages that. Yeah. Um, an artist or art patron at some point bought them all and smashed the walls and turned it into a house, which is an art piece of art. Like all, everything's very carefully arranged and it has paintings and things uh-huh. all around. And one of the one of the pieces that's in there before you leave, it's just a, it looks like a chunk of burnt wood, uh-huh. um, but it's been carefully kind of you know constructed in some way little bits of it have been shaved off yeah. and I, I looked at this piece of wood and I felt intimidated and I thought how weird is that <laughs> like this is a piece of wood like there's yeah. nothing but yet yeah, this artist is like well if I make this shape yeah I don't think the, the artist was necessarily like going for a particular response yeah, you know yeah. because I guess when you're making art you just have to respond to whatever you know your your instincts are telling you but like isn't that funny that it, that this artist can abstract something just a shape mm. that like triggers something really primitive in my in my head mm-hmm. that makes me feel a little intimidated that's a kind of abstraction yeah, right absolutely. yeah and that's a kind of simplification of, of the world yeah because like I guess it's asking the question well what is it that makes your brain go oh no <laughs> <laughs> and apparently yeah. it's yeah. just a vaguely humanoid shape with some yeah. slightly menacing features <laughs> can make your brain now you know, <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs> oh, no. yeah 
Yeah, so that was a kind of abstraction. But yeah, so that's that's. Um, did you um, did you do like exhibits that you'd go to? Did you get? Was it kind of around the house? You know, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I always grew up with a lot of a lot of art, and my my dad had the studio um, just out in the backyard, and uh, yeah, we'd have. Yeah, so when I was a kid, we'd travel a bit, and so my dad was used. He'd always use different influences from, like, uh, so when I was seven, six, we we came over to Europe. Um, my mum was learning. My mum became a language teacher. She became an Italian teacher. So they were like, we came to Italy. My mum was learning Italian. My dad was on his study leave, and. Um, and he we he just dragged us around to all these churches. We were not, mm. not religious, very secular. He he's Catholic, but we were brought up secular. Mm. But we just be dragged into church after church just to look at the different like decorative styles, the the tiling, the way. Um, he was really interested in kind of baroque, so this sort of crazy wavy, over the top, gaudy sort of uh, decorative styles, which mm. he then used in his art. Um, I think he started very geometric straight lines and bold colours and then sort of but always inspired by some sort of um, yeah some sort of style or some sort of shape that yeah I guess elicited some something in that case it's I mean religious religious art that's what it's about so like you're usually trying to elicit a kind of an awe awe inspiring Mm. especially Baroque It's, it's really about overwhelming people with the kind of godlike beauty so there's something very special about it but also very natural very um very organic mm. uh, so, so kind of pushing you into a slightly different uh, getting you out of your your day-to-day yeah, head and yeah. you know pushing you into a different emotional space where things look a little different and yeah. it's um uh, maybe well that, and that's that's abstract as well um yeah. So, and Baroque being like like really ornate, right? Yeah, really, really yeah, very ornate. ornate. Of gold. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny how like those things. I feel like they strike us pretty differently these days than they mm. might have, you know, back when it was originally made. Yeah. And it's weird to think about kind of that sort of like culture changing over different over that kind of long time scale and how we might react to it and uh, yeah. But so, so that's yeah, cool. I, I so, think yeah. the feelings probably. So a lot of the feeling is probably timeless. Like if you walk into mm. like a big Baroque like cathedral in 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 Florence or something like that, mm. you know, whether you're religious or not, you still walk in and go, wow, like warm. Mm. And there's the sort of feeling of, is it? And it's a, sometimes they're capturing the feeling of being in some beautiful landscape, right? Like being yeah. among, in in beautiful mountains or all those sort of emotions that you get that's almost a rush that you get Mm. I think it's pretty universal and and it even if for someone like me who's not religious at all you kind of understand very quickly what what feeling they're going for and that it it works it's 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 wonderful you you can you can really feel it's you know if you go in there every every Sunday or regularly Mm. during the week you know you would it, re- it replenishes you and, and, and it's something so that initial feeling that you have you think is, pro- is, is probably universal but like then what you hang what you hang it on like the, con- yeah, yeah. the concepts that you hang it on yeah, could, could yeah, be yeah. very different Absolutely. you know yeah, yeah. 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 
like how do you explain to yourself that reaction yeah exactly like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah why do i feel this way <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, yeah. The feelings are yeah. the same but yeah that's right yeah and uh, apparently that's how our brains work we have the reaction first and then we come up with the explanation mm. that's what's kind of coming out of popular psychology or not mm. popular psychology but like i'm not a psychologist but that's mm. that's what i'm gleaning from like apparently that's a a big kind of um i don't know not movement exactly but a big kind of result these days mm. of we're sort of discovering like no no the feeling comes first and then we come along and explain it <laughs> with our yeah, with our brains and, about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah exactly uh, which has all sorts of implications but uh, but anyway <laughs> so your mom was a language language teacher yeah and then she worked in the public service and she always um dealt with yeah bizarre things like pensions but people who migrated australia is full of migrants i mean my father's family were migrants from the czech republic yeah. after the war and uh, my mom spoke italian she didn't like teaching so she um but she found she she was her language skills were useful in the public service to help them to deal with uh, migrants who kind of worked, for example, in Italy for half their life and then in Australia for half their life and were entitled to a pension from both countries mm, and we right. had these agreements. But a lot of them never uh, learned to speak English that well or as they got older, they kind of, in a sense, digressed back to their native mm. tongue. Mm. Um, and then she later, she's always a language into languages so she she's doing spanish later on now now she's retired and she's learning greek and mm. other things <laughs> it's really <laughs> impressive i'm really yeah. impressed by people who can learn other languages and it just seems like magic to me kind of <laughs> i'm pretty bad at it i don't know do you have a can you speak other languages um, do you have much experience with, i, I with can that? but i i never really learned them the way my mum learned my mum learned them by you study like you know going to classes getting in a group and I learned um, Spanish and French, but only because I lived in South America as an exchange student. Oh, you did? Okay. Um, and I just had virtually no one around me that spoke English oh, fluently. Yeah. Hmm. So that's, uh, yeah, that's not, diff- it's it's challenging, but it's, it ha- you, you would, <laughs> anybody in that situation hmm. would learn the language it's just you're just forced to whereas to find that discipline when you're not in that context i think that's the hard thing about languages mm. um, and it, and when it, you need it when, if you're someone who communicates or wants to communicate if you have to use these these words to communicate or to understand understand and be understood it's easy because you're you're you're, you're I, I psychologically i think you're just you're, you force yourself to do it mm. um and then French, yeah, I worked in a French lab for a year and a half. And, uh, yeah, French people like to speak French. <laughs> and they like to speak French when they have long lunches, which is, which is great. Um, and, again, to, to, to be interact with people socially, I needed to, which I, I like to do. Yeah, because um, otherwise, I guess if you, if you don't do that, otherwise, at the Institute, you're probably speaking English, I guess, because that's the scientific yeah, language. Yeah, yeah. And then you go out to lunch... And if you don't know French, you're kind of reduced. Or if you know very, very little French, you, you can... Work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But like you, you do this, you kind of hit the wall going from like, well, a minute ago, I was talking about baroclinic instability, <laughs> but now I'm reduced to, hmm, soup. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, right. That's all I can do. Yes, so what will you do on the weekend? <laughs>
<laughs> I promise I'm smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I actually, the last six months I was there, my partner was there with me for the for first year or so, and then um, she she got this crazy job in Malaysia, so she was like living apart for six months. Mm. But that was the best thing for my French because I moved into a share house. Oh right. And yeah. you know. If you're in a share house with three other French people, they don't want to speak English when they get home. You know, no. they they can speak English perfectly well, but they didn't. So we just just throwing and and I I, I don't mind making mistakes. So like to, for me, it's a game. Yeah, you know, the, the speaking the language, but I can't I can't learn one outside of that situation. I find it really hard to. Mm-hmm. Because you have to sit yourself down, and, or you have to you have to talk to someone who, like, if if you work with a French person, you you've sort of in the habit of speaking English. Everybody around you at lunch is speaking English. It's yeah. very hard to sort of break that cycle. Yeah. So, but if you're immersed in it, I think is a word yeah. they yeah. use. Yeah. You know, immersion. That's good for language learning. Yeah. yeah. How long were you in South America? Uh, a year. I spent. Yeah. So when I was, just before I turned 18, I did like an extra year of high school. Uh, I sort of already finished my kind of university entrance stuff and all that in Australia. And I did an extra year just to live in Bolivia. It was in Bolivia. Yeah. um, In the middle of Bolivia, a place called Cochabamba. And um, I I went to, I was in a high school for about six months. uh, First for like a semester, I guess, effectively. And then... They let me transfer, because I'd already finished high school, they let me spend half, the other half of the year in a university, hmm. and a public university in, um, in Bolivia, which was, yeah, an amazing, amazing... It's the kind of thing that it... I don't know how other people um, recollect, you know, different phases of their life, but it's very, very often that these prominent memories come back because there's so many amazing experiences living in this it's been pretty distinct yeah it looks pretty different from the rest of your life so absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it's very poor very conservative mm. i mean it wasn't always easy um yeah very strongly religious in certain ways and sort of catholic but with a very strong indigenous cultural kind of kind of way so they didn't have the, the festivals that they celebrated weren't really Christmas and, and Easter. They had them, mm. but they really were into more, like, things that had been... That, that they were sort of celebrating a certain saint, you know, the Virgin oh, of okay. such and such. But yeah. actually, it was an adaptation of it. It's actually... About 95% of the population of Bolivia has indigenous, some indigenous ancestry, mm. and more than half are full-blood indigenous. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's very, more so than mo- a lot of better-known South American countries, it's actually quite mm. um, homogeneously indigenous. In, you know, in a way, there's, you know, um, people with a Spanish or European ancestry tend to be wealthier uh, Mm. As, is, as is the case in most post-colonial countries. But yeah, um, but yeah it, was, it was really, yeah. And there was a lot of, a lot of intense poverty um, and, and yeah, the distinction between going to a relatively affluent 
high school um, with kids that were just sort of, I guess, not that engaged in the world to then going to a public university where most people were living very simple lives but were very engaged in politics and lots of interest in socialism, for example, and various things like that in the current affairs. So actually, um, the course I was... this the. The, sub- the subjects I was doing within the university were part of a, uh, like almost a journalism course, mm-hmm. like a liberal arts type of course. So most of my students wanted to be journalists or, mm-hmm. or have some involvement in, in public affairs. So they were really, yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah. Journalism, yeah? Yeah. So you yeah. were writing and, yeah? Yeah, I mean, they, they, I, I think they, they gave, so the, I, I still knew I wanted to do physics, but I figured that I wouldn't, it wasn't any point me going to university in Bolivia and, and doing like first year mathematics because mm. I knew I was going to have to come back to university in mm. Australia and do it anyway. Yeah. They, yeah. they weren't going to like transfer my credit from, mm. a, right. from an unknown university in Bolivia. Might as well and, do something different. Yeah, yeah, and I figured that I would, my language skills would improve more quickly and I would meet more, a broader range of people if I did mm. something like that. And I did, wasn't sure what level of participation that would be expected. But it turned out I, I walked to this, it's called the um, Communication Social. It was like the social communication department. Mm. And I went to the head office and I asked to speak to, you know, the, the head to sort of ask permission to join this. Mm of course or sit, sit in on classes and I met this guy and I said you know hola and I you know, introduced myself yeah. in Spanish and then he sort of said oh you know where are you from and then I'm like oh, Australia and well in Spanish and then he just goes oh g'day mate <laughs> <laughs> in this kind of curious Aussie accent and it turned out he was the first Bolivian to go to Australia as an exchange student really in oh, 1988 wow. <laughs> and oh, I claimed to be anyway and, and he actually went to Launceston which is in the north of Tasmania oh that's funny and he and we knew you know knew mutually like new people so there's this what? completely unreal uh, kind of sequence of events that, um, is, that is bizarre yeah and <laughs> I was just completely gobsmacked and, and he was now the head of this communication like it spoke English perfectly huh. and um, he, he sort of recommended these different classes I could take he sort of suggested I do classes at different levels um, year levels mm. and um, and yeah and then I and, and he would also single me out in class whenever <laughs> they were having a discussion so I had to I had no choice but yeah. to like read all you know, the chapter we were discussing yeah, you, you couldn't just always go, uh, lo siento, no hablo más en español. Yeah, so they, they sort of would be like, oh, and what does the Australian think about this, you know, you know political topic? And so I'd sort of go home every night and I'd be like reading these. Um, and it was, it was brilliant for my, uh, I felt like at the time my Spanish was quite good. It, mm. But at the same time, it was quite interesting for these students because the, the the, the high school system doesn't do a lot of critical thinking, unfortunately. I mean, in a lot of mm. poorer countries, especially then, um, they just have a very traditional view that, that in school you kind of learn handwriting, you learn 
you know, maths and arithmetic and and you remember historical facts and you're very patriotic. Like a set um, of facts, like a set of uh, tools, like here, go get a job with these specific yeah, tools. You yeah, know, yeah, specific, specific tools, specific information, very information right. heavy. And, um, whereas people, people complain about how bad Australians do on like, you know, reading and language things. But the reality is I think Australian schooling, as British schooling and American schooling to a degree, is, um, is there's much more emphasis on creativity Mm. Uh, and and critical thinking. So I'd been it'd be drilled into us the idea of writing an essay and forming a critical argument, mm. debating and this sort of stuff. So although my language skills weren't so good, the the it was quite amazing to see the range of abilities of, of the students. Like some of them were like really get they they weren't really being introduced that into a university. It sounds sort of um, patronizing but it's just unfortunate it's just the way they were they were all picking it up then and there and and, and the but uh, the history teacher for example he 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 was he'd worked in the US for many years and come back and he, he wanted um, students to think about how journalism and and comunicación social had influenced Bolivian history hmm. um, and it was really confronting for a lot of students because they thought history was, you know, remembering when each of the revolutions were or remembering mm. when certain battles are or certain leaders died. And it was so it was so amazing because you you'd read about this these these mining radio groups. So there were these these miners were sort of this oppressed class, mm. um, really oppressed, like in a few hundred years ago. Um, in Bolivia, and and they managed to sort of form a resistance and regain sort of control of of, of basically the country in a sense, form like a revolution, thanks to the radio. If it wasn't for the radio, which oh. is sort of cheap and effective yeah. um, means of communication, um, and there's sort of many examples like that where and hard to regulate without just like yeah. scrambling all of it and yeah, yeah, just and like, you know. they, they, yeah. So there wasn't much counter technology in, in right. the um, kind of late 1800s, early 1900s, for example. Yeah, and I guess even if even if the government or whatever you know was listening, yeah. Yeah. well, if you were clever enough, I guess they didn't necessarily yeah. know where you were yeah. you know, radioing from, and they didn't know where to come yeah. find yeah, you. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And once yeah. they, and it's sort of whack a mole once one. Yeah. So it would have it would have been it would have been sorry the twenty it would have been the twentieth century, hmm. um, early twentieth century. But um, yeah, so. It was, it was, it was just, yeah, so this is bizarre, bizarre actually experience in a way being but, in, this, in this country. And but it sounds like, yeah, you, that you, you were showing them an example of, like, you're allowed to kick the tires of these things, of these, like, ideas, you know, concepts. Yeah, and this, like, le- this lecture you know, we had was, like, really inspiring, actually, the way he really, he really got everybody, yeah, thinking, so... Yeah, yeah, mm. it was, it was, it was. So I, so I, in a sense, I, I, it wasn't that I was superior to anyone, but I, right. but, but it, it, it wasn't the language skills that mattered. I guess is what mm. I would say. It was right. more the, in the end, you, the the whole like knowing the different words. Once you've got a sort of sufficient vocabulary, you can actually, you can actually, um, I think, I think. 
the the idea the idea of having an argument is is universal. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's interesting. You're coming back to science. I mean, that was one thing that we discussed quite a lot in France. Is that um, language doesn't have to be sophisticated to be powerful. Yes. And, and, and when we write papers, um, a lot of French people, understandably, because often French people don't like speaking English, which is fair enough, they're very proud of their <laughs> language, but it is a really valid thing that a lot of people have, have said to me is that, you know, we, sh- we should think about a kind of trying to make science simple language. Absolutely. So it's accessible, but you, you, it doesn't actually, it doesn't limit what you can say, you know, and as native English speakers, often we add a lot of flamboyance to our language. Mm. It doesn't really add to the science. It doesn't make the science yeah. more beautiful. It just makes the words fancier. So. Yeah. Like who came up with Barry Clinic to get back to that term? Like, <laughs> who did that? <laughs> yeah. Whereas, um, oh, that, and that reminds me of um, along those kind of same lines, yeah. one of my old professors was like, well, why do we keep why do we keep naming these concepts after people? That doesn't help, you know. It's like, oh yeah, you know, say yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is a Kelvin Helmholtz, you know, oh, yeah, way. It's like, the worst. Yeah. Well, it's nice that we're giving them credit, but it it, yeah. it doesn't tell you anything about what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it, it tells you it's a kind of wave, but that's yeah. that's all it tells you. Yeah, like, if you're lucky. You know, the, the, yeah. the classic one is uh, the brute Weissler mm-hmm. uh, parameter in squared. And, 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 <laughs> yeah. and, and it, and if you say that, then you you think, well, firstly, how do I spell that? Yeah, lots of dots. Um, you know, you need lots we, of and dots. if we are going to name it after people, we shouldn't discriminate against people who have hard words to spell. Right. But it's two people. It's named after two people, and that's all you know. Mm. Maybe they're Scandinavian, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, or you could call it a buoyancy frequency, and you think, okay, I know, I know what buoyancy is. Mm-hmm. Frequency, it's probably it doesn't take you very long to figure out that it's the frequency at which a buoyancy perturbation oscillates. It's like the natural frequency that 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 things bounce up and down. That what that, that uh, an interface between a dense and a light layer. Yeah bounce up and down so it's, it goes it's, from it's, being it's a, more dense than its environment to yeah. less dense than its environment and yeah. back and forth and back and yeah. forth and back and forth mm-hmm. and that's the frequency that it does it yeah yeah um and it's sort of beautiful semantically it's beautiful but yeah. and we could do that with so many other <laughs> other expressions but we we don't like um you know theorems Divergence theorem or, or mm. Gauss's, no, Gauss's theorem, or I, mean, I can't remember. I, I always say divergence theorem, but some people name it after Gauss's theorem. Gauss, yeah. or, and it's like divergence theorem. Because <laughs> divergence then, is equal to integral of flux. Yeah. Because then it tells you what it is. It gives yeah. you a little hint as yeah, to what least, it is. At least yeah. a hint. Yeah. At least a, so then when you really learn it for the first time, mm. it becomes a little easier to attach your concept back to that. Yeah. Like, um, I even so even though this is like one of the most fundamental concepts in oceanography, um, I still have to look up Rossby ra- Rossby radius sometimes because mm. I can't like, you know, I, I mean I I, yeah. know, I know what it is when I look at it I go oh right, but I think just something about calling yeah. it a Rossby radius yeah. doesn't help me like yeah so some people would know. say radius of deformation is that the same thing I think. There's a Rossby radius of deformation, yeah, right? Is what, what people say. <laughs> yeah, At least it's yeah. sort of getting getting a bit more information in there. And that one, yeah. that one is it has to do with 
when does rotation become important? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. relative to like how fast stuff is moving. So yeah. we could call it something else, something yeah. like I don't know, rotation, rotation parameter, yeah. or yeah. maybe you need three words or two words. Yeah. But like yeah. we could probably, it's awesome. Again, it's awesome we're giving Rusty credit, yeah. <laughs> and that's appropriate. But yeah, it, yeah I, I think we should you know, name like buildings or yeah. know, things like name name. Um, academic titles or t- yeah. you know, name, name other things after these people but, uh, but not, not break, break rooms yeah <laughs> but we don't need to make the tools of our trade kind of less practical just for the benefit of uh, yeah you know, of, of, of reverence for these people yeah. yeah well in that case we we're not going to call your diagrams Zika diagrams no, then no, so no, like you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Diagram. Diagram. Zika trajectories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but later, yeah, there'll be a break room at least. <laughs> this is the this specific one. Yeah, we know we know a lot about the thermodynamics of this particular <laughs> urinal. Yeah, no. Zika flash through you We'll find something. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> when you, you, uh, I'd be honored. Yeah. I'd be honored. That's my... Well, this is recorded for posterity. That's it. This is my life goal. Yeah. This will be on the internet. Yeah, that's what so, I'm doing you know, for, actually. You know, it's all for the... The toilet. The credit, yeah. <laughs> all, for the, all for the respect. All for the respect. <laughs> Um, that's something I've heard a more senior scientist say, and it's, it's somebody I think you know, but I won't I won't call them out on it. Either. They were like, you know, I'm just doing this for respect. I just wanted the respect. You probably know who I mean, actually. <laughs> it's like, um, so that uh, yeah, I don't. You never I don't, know whether a British person's being sarcastic when they say things. So you sort of look them in the eye and you think, uh, I think they're being sarcastic, but there might be some truth, or maybe it was they were totally. Well, this is an Australian person, oh, okay. so I don't know yeah, where yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, also, also. I could, I could also, yeah, yeah, for the same, yeah. So this, this will be on the internet. So somebody, okay. you know, when, when, uh, you know, many decades later, yeah. somebody find a good urinal, urinal <laughs> to name it the Zika, <laughs> Zika urinal, the Zika yes. flush. Now I'm thinking it seems a bit misogynistic for it to be urinal. Oh, that's like true. A okay. A unisex toilet would be. It's a good point because then it's especially if you're thinking yeah. forward in time, they may, may have been completely abolished by then. So. What's that? Yeah. Uh, urinals or urinals? Yeah. Uh, yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's inaccessible. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. right. Yeah. <laughs> or or to develop the equivalent technology for for women also. Yeah. You know, yeah, to, yeah. You know. Women. Trans, yeah. yeah. So it's just like universal gender kind of. Yeah. Anyway, this something is getting, that this is getting into okay. <laughs> something that lets you stand is the point. <laughs> something that lets you stand. Quick and easy, yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. And you don't have to touch. You don't have to sit or anything. <laughs> I think would be appreciated <laughs> from what I've heard. Yeah. Oh <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. So clean, clean language, simple language for science for science yeah, communication. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm totally, I'm totally on board with that, um, and I, I think that's stripping things down, simplifying it. That's that's so important, and um, I've gotten a little. Simple I, is beautiful. Yes, I, I've gotten a little. Um, I think I, I make some people grumpy when I get on my high horse about this, but um, and I'm not saying I'm always perfect about this, but like I feel like we really should try to write in first person, 
you know, where it's like, uh-huh. I did this, or we did that, yeah. or yeah, even yeah, if you're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. the model did this, yeah. where there's like always a clear subject and a clear yeah. verb, you know, yeah, there's a yeah, clear yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. And it, 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 you, yeah, when you, when you write, if you write that like that a bit, and then you can, you see something written the other way, and you just, hmm. just so, yeah, so uptight, so like, strange in a sense. Yes. It's just so much more, it's a relief to do it. To do it in first person or yeah, directly, like direct language, like you say. Yeah. Yeah, instead of instead of saying something like, um, well the model was parameterized. Oh no, actually that's okay, isn't it? It's um what would be an example of kind of passive passive voice where you're a, like a, a you parameterization know, was was yes. implemented in the model. That's it, yeah, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> parameterization was implemented in the model. Like yeah. and I, I it always was found to uh, <laughs> Increase sea surface temperature yeah. on average by 0.2 degrees Celsius. My obnoxious <laughs> comment to that is like, what, what a ghost, a ghost found, like a ghost found this, <laughs> like some disembodied, like it appeared, this result yeah. appeared miraculously. Yeah. Science does not involve humans. It, 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 it's like an apparition <laughs> that, you know, I, I merely observe the apparition as it, as it filters into the room from the heavens. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I have, I don't know if I'm being a, an obnoxious reviewer, but I have, and maybe I'm outing myself just now, but I have on a couple uh, of reviews said, you. I said, it's yeah, you. it probably was, probably was me. You were a reviewer too. If, if, well, if I was mostly like, well, the paper seems great and, uh, the science seems all right. And, <laughs> but can you make it a uh, first person, please? <laughs> it, it may have been me. It may have possibly been me. Not, not to out well, myself. If, if but, the yeah. journal has the, that sort of style guide or something. Or is, if it's recommended by the journal, then I guess I guess if the journal actually recommends something different, then you're kind of recommending it to the journal. <laughs> I guess so, right? Yeah, and then and then the editor. You can, can say I refuse to review any of your <laughs> your the A's articles until you make it like explicit that they. Put, put it, it in, in first person. Put it in first person, yeah, so I can read it. So I'm not reading the same sentence over and over again going, who did, what, where did this come from? Um, yeah, no, that's, that's true. Some journals do actually specify that, don't they? Um, that they, they kind of demand. I've heard one horror story where uh, one of our colleagues got an article accepted. It had been all the way through peer review, mm. and it got to the typesetting stage, and they said, by the way, you have to turn everything into passive voice. And so uh, they had to like go through and, and destroy their beautiful writing mm-hmm. and, and just make it look awful. Mm. I guess some people have the perception that it looks um, it looks objective, but I just think it sounds yeah. awkward and, no, and weird. Yeah, in a way, it's, I think it's, it's hard for people when they're writing as we often have to do, you know, like a, a fellowship proposal or something mm. like that, where you, especially if you're Anglo-Saxon, it, it, there's a, you know, culturally you don't want to be talking up yourself too much, but you kind of have to, you know, yeah. you have to say, I was the first person to do this, or I am yeah. best at that. Yeah. And I am the and, hero. Yeah, if you write those proposals, if you write it the other way, the just comes across so strangely like the candidate (laughs) (laughs) the candidate the person writing this letter is very (laughs) it sounds even worse oh my god (laughs) yeah it it happens and and sometimes it's people recommended or people have this you know yeah and some people I guess if that's what you're used to writing it's what you prefer Mm. to read as well like I mean maybe maybe if you've never seen it if you've never got used to it another way 
I do understand the folks who are like, well, I don't want to keep saying I every sentence. Well, I get that. There, there are ways around that. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, I understand you don't want to just keep going I, 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 I. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I guess for the fellowships, um, the advice, you know, I was, I was pointed down the path of like, well, make it a hero narrative. You know, yeah. Even if it feels kind of gross, like, yeah. you know, go ahead and make it out to be, there's a gap in our knowledge and it's really bad. Yeah, and yeah. I'm going to be the person to fill it. I'm, yeah. the, I'm the only person who could do this. You have to give me this money. Yeah, yeah, have to, like, or, or this will never get done. Yeah. <laughs> this has to get done right now. Which, of course, is framing things in a very particular way. Yeah. But yeah, that's the advice I was kind of given. And yeah, me too. So I think if those are the, the rules of the game, so to speak, I don't think there's any shame in like... It's okay. Go for it. It's fine. You know, we, we all understand mm-hmm. what you're doing by by kind of writing in this you yeah. know very confident fashion. Um, yeah, it's a funny it's a funny job we have in that. You know, I think pe- people are, are often being you know critically assessed regularly in different jobs, but in this sort of profession where a lot of us move forward by applying for these fellowships, you know, you've got there aren't many jobs where you have to write 20 pages saying why you are the best and then and then pro- provide data comparing you to other people Oof. and then worst of all or you, most uniquely of all be anonymously your 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 fellowship proposal so effectively you as a person are being anonymously reviewed yeah that that's quite uniquely um, harsh in a way. Yes. Um, and it, and unfortunately, it, 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 there's a certain, you, you, I, I kind of see self-selection where people who are brilliant, you know, people who, who, who do, who are, you know, who, who, who can, you know, fill that knowledge gap, mm. but they don't want to, or they don't see themselves as being the hero. Mm. Um, as much as people say no, 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 right at the hero, they just can't bring themselves to, and they can't bring themselves to. They don't believe that they're they're good enough to compete with the other people applying, and it's mm. it's really sad. Um, but it's it's very hard to overcome that because you're not going to sell yourself. It's, you know, who is? And if there's lots of people that want the job. Yeah, that's true. No, I, I've I've written a few. I've written some fellowship applications and some job applications mm-hmm. and I've I've had to like try to get over that and and it it is hard at first right because mm-hmm. you don't necessarily want to come across as arrogant or as you know as, as viewing yourself as a hero because getting back to where we started mm-hmm. because we recognize we know that science is actually way more collaborative and way more kind of mm-hmm. community mm-hmm. driven mm-hmm. you know it's mm-hmm. not about these single gigantic titanic no, you know, no, figures you know, giant leaps you're, 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 yeah, you're making incremental steps some things, things look like giant leaps but it's just an incremental step and the right timing and, hmm. uh, yeah like even you know like Einstein with special relativity that idea was in, in the air it was coming mm-hmm. you know it, it wasn't um, that, that there were folks heading in a similar direction, which kind of makes me think of, you know, you and the Swedish group you mentioned, <laughs> okay. like, you know, there were other folks n- okay, nudging, I'm nudging. I'm going to put that on the next that. fellowship proposal, yeah. you know. As per podcast. I've been, uh, compared, <laughs> I've been compared to Albert Einstein. And Once these days. <laughs> By a reputable, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know. <laughs> 
scientist and science communicator. Yeah. 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 Okay. No, maybe I went. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on how how much uh, how how much you need that hero hero narrative, you know, for your next proposal. How, how full of hot air do you need to get the proposal to get it to float? Oh, I like that analogy. It's a hot air balloon. It's you have to put enough hot air in the proposal to get it to lift off the ground. Without, without popping. <laughs> without popping. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Reviewer coming along going, yeah, mm. no. <laughs> it's okay, it's a slow leak. It's a slow, just we'll, <laughs> it's fine. We'll patch it. We'll patch the leak. Um, yeah, you hope they only poke small holes in your, in your proposal that you can patch up. Um, Right, yeah, because we we recognize that it's so community driven, and like there, while there are moments of individual creativity and individual inspiration, it's yeah. like so important to be part, to be in the community and to be mm. supported by it. Mm. You know, like the way you were by mm. your first by one of your early advisors, mm. giving you the freedom to like, yeah, go go explore that. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, I wanted to get back. I realized that I don't think I gave you enough of a chance to like <laughs> answer the question of um, are there things you do to try to let your creativity out or how do you like are there things you do to nurture it are there things you do to you know to help it kind of flourish yeah yeah are there things that you found that kind of are good fertilizer for that versus not not so good fertilizer yeah well i mean so uh, up until 2006 i was a research fellow in the uk um because I managed to get the you know enough air into the balloon to get the things funded. Um, enough hot air. That's it. Enough hot air. And uh, at that at that time, it, it flowed quite freely. And I had some health problems, and so distractions. Any distraction is for me. Yeah, things come when I have sequence of of at least a sequence of days. It has to have, to have like very open space yes. to sort of think. And and maybe I could be working on something quite mundane that might be okay, but I can't have too many little distractions on my on my uh, kind of yeah creative parts of my brain or, yeah. or or whatever they are. So over those years, I guess I found it okay because I had lots of lots of time. Um, but whenever I had some health problems, it just shut things down for in some cases for months and months. So mm. I was like, in a sense, my 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 the work that was being produced was merely following through on things that ideas that I'd had a long time before, um, and then recently we found it also with teaching, which I love. I love teaching, but it's very hard to teach. I find it very hard to teach and do creative research. I can do a bit of research. I can help with other people, and in a sense, yeah, pursue I, I you know ideas, sort of see them through, in a sense, crank the handle. But to come up with new ideas while also having the demands of, you know, I've got to prepare a lecture for tomorrow, I've got to mark these these assignments, I've got to um, respond to this student's question uh, on a forum. Yeah. All those little distractions I found I find impossible to really come up with new ideas. So for me it's really about getting all that done well and efficiently and then having a proper amount of time to to think clearly and also discuss for me for me science is very very social ideas yeah. ideas come while I talk absolutely to people yeah um, and for me it's very um, I'm not I'm not I'm more of a, a talker than a writer like I like to I like to hear people I like to go to seminars I like to 
um, listen to podcasts or, you know, I, I like, and so I like to interact with people, bounce things off and then go away by myself and have just clarity and a pen, typically just a pen and paper mm-hmm. or maybe a data set and just something, a programming language that I can sort of, where I can just play around with data easily. Um, and yeah, just ask questions and, and fool around and have, have fun. Um, have fun with it like like it were a puzzle but it's really about interaction with people and enough time enough space yeah so the interactions that's kind of fuel for the creativity yeah yeah Yeah. and then you give yourself time and space to kind of let something appear let something come out of that process yes play with equations, play with data. Yeah, yeah, give yourself time and space and the permission to, to play with things. Yeah. Don't schedule too many meetings, I yeah, guess. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> check my phone for emails or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, so for example, the last three weeks, I've been to see various researchers and working with various, uh, lots of sort of um, early career researchers and PhD students and, and senior people as well. And asking people, like, you know, what questions do they want answered? Like, that's Mm. often something I'm very good at forgetting because I'm a very methods-oriented. I just come up with different spaces, you know, different coordinate systems, different ways of representing Mm. things. But I can come up with those forever with that. But it's it's much more useful, I find, to to figure out, you know, what are people actually looking for when they're looking for these things, what level of complexity they want, what, mm. what level of... Because ultimately, if you're simplifying things, if you're reducing information, you're throwing some information away. Yes. So what, what is the information you do and don't need for your problem? Um, talking to people about what they've tried, telling them about what, what I've done before, you know, um, what, what methods I can immediately think of. But then it's really that when I go away and even... You know, on the train this morning, thinking, starting to think about, oh, that person's doing that, and but that person's doing that. We could actually bring those two ideas together and, and solve this big problem. And hmm. um, yeah, so it's yeah, it's like fertilizing, fertilizing, and then letting things just pop up. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, talking with people, giving it time. You know, connecting to get back to that early thought we had about. Yeah when you've got a bunch of tools lying around sometimes yeah. you just need somebody to come along and and put them together yeah. you know that some of these concepts are already out there you yeah. just need somebody to like well let's try to put let's try to put some paprika in this you know yeah, yeah, this yeah. rice dish and see if that makes it you know interesting um yeah no that that's great that really that makes a lot of sense I, i've been trying to to, to hopefully encourage that some I've been trying to keep my, my mornings free uh-huh. of like at yeah. least 10 to lunch and that's not a huge amount of time but yeah. like I've tried to keep that free for like I will do science stuff you yeah. know in the mornings yeah. Yeah. and then try to keep my meetings and things to the kind of afternoon yeah so the sort of responsive mode in the afternoon and active mode in the morning you're doing you make new things your own things and in the afternoon you're you're yeah, responding to other people's issues or yeah. projects or fault. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, and trying to make something of your own versus help putting out other. I don't want to say putting out fires, but yeah. you know, like you said, helping other folks with 
yeah. like students yeah. they might need help with this and that yeah um yeah no it's it doesn't it doesn't quite feel like enough time i feel, <laughs> i feel like i need to make more time for it but um i guess you know when you get more responsibilities that yeah. just becomes That's something true. you have to, to balance and you have to yeah. get efficient at it yeah and i like david marshall has to be really efficient for example yeah. yeah he has a big family yeah yeah he has a big family and lots of students so yeah. he has to find a good way yeah. if he wants he to make to, that yeah. he seems to, yeah. to do it yeah. yeah so he must have that space somewhere for carved out for himself yeah. to say well this is when i will play with an idea yeah. and, and let something occur yeah. um i mean sometimes it's it I, I don't try to work on weekends or anything like that, but, you know, sometimes just in the shower and you go, oh, it's, you know. It's, mm-hmm. So I worked for you, my PhD supervisor with Trevor McDougall and he's always got these anecdotes for when he, when he came up with some idea, you know, he had this idea for, yeah, how, how, to, how to describe temperature in a kind of the most conservative possible way and he was just in the shower and, you know, and he had came to him and um, hmm. I had some idea I think we had a meeting for five days in, in or three days in Sydney uh, like a formal sort of workshop and then we had a couple of extra days um, chatting to people quite intensely and then I tried to get away from things and go for a, a hike along the coast hmm. uh, with some friends non-science friends and I was just you know looking up to see and I had this idea that had come from hmm you know, putting together something I'd been working on for a while with a colleague and a conversation we'd had with completely different people. Um, yeah, it's... That's it, a really nice moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I've heard that about creativity before, that you kind of, you know, you think very hard about it, yeah. about the problem. Yeah. Yeah, you spend time focusing on it and then try to relax, then yeah. try to forget about it. Yeah. And, like, your subconscious brain will keep working on it. Yeah. And it will deliver it to you as if by magic. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I was cooking this in the back. And now, <laughs> now you can try it. Uh, that's pretty amazing. But then, like you said earlier in the conversation, you then have to have the focus to say well okay let's let's carry this through and let's yeah. let's do the yeah. the work which is not not necessarily as rewarding yeah. um and, and and i guess when you start to try to apply whatever that new idea is that's when you discover all the bits that don't quite work and the things yeah. that don't quite yeah. fit and the, the rough edges that you might have to like yeah. well we're gonna knock that off for now and yeah. we're gonna ignore this bit for now yeah um yeah so for, in my case for example that you know looking at the ocean in these you know, these thermodynamic coordinates, temperature, salinity, um, that came to me, well, I mean, I, I did that work in 2012 or so, um, 2011, 12, but at that same time, like a few years, the, the, a year earlier, you know, I had ideas that I thought were amazing and I sort of, you know, had come to me and, and, in some, and I'd spoken to people about them and they thought they were great ideas and mm. ran simulations and I'd uh, found that they were completely bogus. It didn't work. <laughs> oh. it was, it, and it was, but that, but that's the reality for every for for that for that one kind of idea that in my case is sort of defined in almost defined my career. You know, there were many other ideas that that I that I I had that I thought were great. You know, yeah. and and it turned out they weren't. And so, um, yeah. So the, your job isn't done when you've got that idea. When you have it, it feels good when when you when. When you haven't, when your theory hasn't yet been disproven, but most, <laughs> most, most of them are just waiting to be, 
disprove it. Yeah, which is that's a good point. <laughs> so if you have that feeling, write down your thoughts real yes. quick. But then maybe go celebrate. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't immediately go try to, oh, yeah, yeah, to yeah, disprove yeah, so, it. So. <laughs> sit in that feeling for a little bit yeah, and try to yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, that's right. Because it doesn't come along very often. If you submit a paper to a journal, you have this few weeks where you think that everything's just going to be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get a, the revisions back and you're like, oh. <laughs> but yeah, but it is, it, it is hard work. It's not, it, it sort of it sounds effortless, but it's hard work actually getting to this position where you're going to have the idea and then even if you have the idea it's hard work turning it into something um, that's you know and, and, and it'd be great if we had a job where we could just talk about different ideas we have and never test them but mm. not very useful or satisfying probably we'd have a hard time getting um, public, public funds <laughs> what do you want to do with this money sit and think about yeah. stuff <laughs> and uh <laughs> It'll feel great when we have these ideas. <laughs> We'd really appreciate <laughs> if you'd fund us. It's a real gap, I know. and I think I'm the hero. That, yeah, uh, that's right. that gap in society. That <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll tweet about it. <laughs> I had this idea. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But if, yeah, if you don't like it, then can you not tweet for a few hours? Just let me enjoy it. <laughs> Yeah, just let me sit with it. Now that's true. Twitter's the wrong place to go for validation. Probably it's probably not where you want to go if you're if you're validation seeking. That's probably not your not your source. Um, yeah. So that's getting back to your kind of you know history. Um, I mean, I don't know what your what your schedule looks like. I don't want to keep you forever. No, that's but, all right. Um, so you went into physics in Australia, yeah. like in for your yeah, undergrad. After Bolivia, I went to physics and maths. Yeah. yeah okay yeah and, then, and so that was um, was that at Tasmania yeah Is University that? of Tasmania okay. so yeah. originally I thought I was going to study rocks or something or something else but mm. most people convinced me if, if I was interested in the natural I, I, as a kid I was interested in like natural disasters like volcanoes and mm. um, cyclones and earthquakes and all that sort of thing so so I had that in the back of my mind, but everyone said, oh, if you're interested in, you know, the natural world, geophysics, just do the physics first and then you can learn the other stuff later. Mm. Physics and maths is the path that underpins everything. So it, yeah. I did that. I think I'd agree with that. Like getting a good solid background in one of those in physics mm. is like, I'm, I'm biased because that's also the path I went, yeah. but like yeah. it, it, I guess it depends on what you want to do, but um I think I did kind of figure like, well, if there are other bits that I want to learn later, I mm. probably can. But mm. physics, looking at it, that felt like something. Oh, I can't, I can't teach this to myself like, yeah, if I don't. I think that's generally true. Yeah. There are always exceptions. There are you know brilliant people that emerge, but and we do, we do have that bias of, um, especially since we have to write these fellowships saying that we're <laughs> we're heroes. Yeah, we we do naturally, kind of. Uh, yeah, you speak to people and they tell you the American system's the best and the British system's the best. Hmm. Australians, yeah, typically Americans and British and Australians that say those individual things. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I did I did physics and maths, uh, but I got to the end of third year and I kind of realised yeah I wasn't interested in like theoretically it just became it's a little bit too abstract for me. I mean I, I was always good at the maths but I enjoyed. The maths and physics when 
when I, I could I could form some sort of an analogy or visualization yes. or something like that. Mm. Um, so in a sense, I I, w- I didn't want too much abstraction, even though I'm to the mm. more of an abstract theoretical oceanographer. I, kind of, mm. I guess I, I dropped out of or, or jumped over at that point. So end of well. third year, I I looked around me and I was like, okay, can I do something? Maybe over the summer, I'd heard there were these sort of internships people could do. Um, summer research things and, and I just spoke to people, I got the name of someone and they put me on to other people um, and that was where I met this guy Trevor McDougall and he just put me on this cute little project about salty, warm salty water coming out of the um, out of the Mediterranean so it's mm. a bit like you know my first uh, tube line you know in the ocean and <laughs> um, yeah, that route from the Mediterranean into the Atlantic was the first first stations I was dealing with. This is the yeah, Med Sea. That's it. You are now arriving <laughs> in the yeah in the Central Atlantic. Yeah, and so and it, it just I I could see my my training in like vector character was just sure. for me it was sort of seemed weirdly easy it was as if like the guys I was working with hadn't done calculus for a while they hadn't done second year maths for a long time mm. they had done it but that, and so I was sort of discussing something and I am just like wrote and I tried pen and paper I'm like no it's actually just this it's easier mm. and they're like oh oh and, and I was like did I just do something useful and, <laughs> and it was for me that was amazing to have spent three years just you know doing assignments that everyone else was doing and getting you know, eight out of ten, or seven out mm, of ten, mm. or nine out of ten, or yeah. whatever, to, to suddenly be like, "Hang on, I mean, no one's done this before." And um, to have this big researcher, like, yeah, you know, oh yeah, yeah that's right, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah, and uh, and, um, and I and I could have then done a kind of an honors degree. So in Australia, we do this thing. In the UK, a, a master's often takes one year. In Australia, mm. we instead of a master's master's has to be at least a year and a half or two years um so we have this thing called honors which is similar it's enough to get you into a phd program enough research like a year of yeah of course research yeah they kind of do that here in the uk yeah like at cambridge they call it a part three it is a master's project but it's 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 shorter than a year yeah yeah but it's essentially like at the end of your undergrad degree tack on one more year of stuff including a big project yeah and then you you have a master's and can yeah. apply to a PhD program. Yeah, so yeah. it's a similar thing. I'm sure it's called honors, but and um, it was actually recommended to me. Well, I kind of decided I wanted to do a bit more physics and maths, mm-hmm. even though I was pretty sure I wanted to keep doing oceanography because I just loved it. Um, I wanted to stay in a physics and maths program for a bit longer, and that was what my Trevor McDougall uh, suggested I do mm-hmm. um, because. If I went into an oceanography program or a, there wasn't even really an oceanography program, it's more like a general environmental science, Antarctic science yeah. program. Yeah. Which would have been fascinating. I would have loved it. But it would have, there was some harder, harder maths and physics that, like you said before, they had, they would have been hard to teach myself. Mm-hmm. Whereas the more general courses, I, I've, I felt I could pick them up later if yeah. need be. Yeah. And that ended up, I think, being a good decision because I did sort of chaos theory and various sort of interesting courses um, that yeah I probably would I wouldn't have I wouldn't have got into either uh, otherwise 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then I then I went into a PhD through University of New South Wales in CSIRO and I stuck in, in Sydney. Trevor, Trevor, yeah. yeah. In Sydney. So I, I was actually based in Hobart because that's where CSIRO is. I just wanted to stay in Hobart because <laughs> it's a really nice place to live. And, uh, that's what I've heard, yeah. And uh, I was really into like whitewater rafting and rock climbing and various. I had lots of friends and my partner lived there. So I actually... I stayed put. I didn't travel at all. And then when we, when I finished my PhD, then oh, so you were able to have your PhD registered in, in somewhere Sydney, else. Yeah, but, but you were able to live in live in, in Hobart. Hobart. Oh, okay, yeah, right. Right. Well, yeah, because my main supervisors were always going to be at this institute at CSIRO, which is which is just a scientific research station. Yeah. So, because that was that was there, it was just a question of which university would sort of put the stamp on my mm. PhD things. Oh, okay. So it, didn't, it, right. didn't, it didn't make a lot of difference to my day-to-day life, whether I was at a local university or a kind of remote university. Mm. And it ended up being a benefit because I had this other group of... I knew all the local people because I was local, but I had I could go and visit the University of New South Wales and I met... So in, in Tasmania, the people in Hobart do... They do more observations. So there are people like going out in the ship you know, measuring temperature and salinity, lots of biogeochemical people, um, things like that. Whereas in Sydney was where a lot of the, the modelers were, people who were doing simulations, thinking about the physics, thinking about the impact on climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I got that exposure to that whole community and it helped me to think about things very differently, having the different perspectives. And, and it got me those connections that later got me that funding to do. Mm. The, the water mass TS space yeah. stuff. Got you plugged into the community. Yeah. Got you plugged yeah. in yeah. and it's connected. Another, another bunch of people to talk to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And then after that, yeah, so we were went to France. Yeah. Went to France, France after that, Grenoble. Then, yeah, Grenoble. Yeah. And then my partner, uh, Ella, got a job in Malaysia. Right. So we yeah. were like living in weird places. Mm. And so that's why I went back to Sydney because they actually let me spend some of the time in Malaysia. So oh, right. Okay. Working for a month. Um, mm. And then, then we both decided that we still wanted to sort of have an adventure and live overseas, but Britain would be the best place for mm-hmm. us because mm-hmm. I had formed connections with people in Southampton, uh, Alberto Navarro-Garavato, mm-hmm. and um, she she knew that the she she'd struggled to get work in France. Um, in, she's like an economist. Uh, was working in sort of finance energy industry and it's just hard at that career level if they don't know your degree or your universities or your company you mm. used to work for it's hard to just bowl up whereas the UK is a bit especially as an Australian and she had a British pa- she has a British passport she has a mm. British citizenship so um, it was, she, we knew it would be pretty easy to get work in London for her so we we sort of came over and we ended up living here for about five years and it was hmm. it was great. It was really fantastic for me because of the the scientific community. So it's where I met you. I met all these people at the British Antarctic Survey, all these different universities that have been sort of now probably will be lifelong friends and colleagues. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I love just how warm and open the community is here. I mean, hmm. my in general, not everybody, but in, in most, the vast majority of people are very um, welcoming, very um, generous, mm. 
both socially but also in terms of ideas and resources and keen to interact and not not too territorial and 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 one of the nicest things especially when they come and visit people seem to be able to find the time to have those nice conversations and mm. not they're not rushing something else they're not they're not i mean we're, we're all busy at different times but um i feel like the community scientific community here yeah it's very still has that bit of freedom to 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 look for new interesting things mm. and isn't just caught up in in yesterday's email or yeah yeah tomorrow's deadline well, we're all, we're all, if I can overgeneralize, we're all a bunch of nerds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and we just want to play a little bit more. Yeah, we just want to like, we want to have a nice time with some yeah. of these concepts. And, yeah. and it is nice if we end up with something useful, you know, as a result of it. But yeah, I think that's what, I think that's part of what people are looking for. They want some time to, yeah. you know, just, that's, that's why a lot of people got into this field, yeah. right? Is yeah. that feeling um, of like, yeah. I like these concepts. Yeah. I like, you know, these, these tools and I like yeah. it when I figure something new out for yeah. myself and I like learning. Yeah. And I think, so yeah, people, um, if they can, it's great. They can make space for that. Cause I think, I think they want it. I think people mm. are welcoming for mm. of that. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So I usually, um, I, I, there, at some point I wanted to ask you some, relatively short questions or like kind of focused questions yeah okay it doesn't mean we have to wrap up i just kind of like to you know yeah. give everybody a chance to respond to these kind of things okay. so um they're just a little question about what you've learned here and there uh-huh. so what is something you've learned about science over, like something that you didn't know before getting into it something that came out um that you kind of discovered about it that maybe wasn't obvious before and we we talked about some elements of this already, right? Like how collaborative it can be yeah. and how community-driven it can be. Um, and that, that's a perfectly fine answer, but I wanted to give you like a chance <laughs> if you wanted to... What I learned about science... Yeah, it's, I guess I find it hard to transport myself back to um, pre-being in science and thing. But I think, yeah, it's probably that. It's how... Um, how much of it comes from, for me, from kind of interactions with people, and and how how create now how how the importance of creativity I think for yeah. me is if like people think about we get asked you know when we're we're talking about hiring PhD students and these sorts of things like what what's the most what do you think the most important thing in choosing you know which candidate is most highly ranked and for me it's actually creativity i feel like a lot of other things can be taught or can can you know people can be very efficient they can be very technical aptitude is really great important but it, it counts for nothing if people can't kind of just figure stuff out for themselves and 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 that takes creativity you have to sort of find ways around sometimes creativity emerges just in like coding problem you're trying to calculate some the average of something or the integral of something and it the the data set you have just presents you with some problem and you can be very efficient but if you don't have that creativity and that that willingness to play and explore then you might not find a way around these problems Mm -hmm. um 
and yeah I hadn't I don't think I'd ever appreciate it because I always I, I mean I did the best marks I got in high school were for, for art subjects not for mm. although I, knew, I kind of did lots of physics and maths and my best results and my most my, I was most my most obsessive self when I was doing mm. this art um, oh, really like the most kind of focused just yeah. just focused on that thing like zoomed yeah, in on that yeah, particular yeah, art and, thing yeah and played with it and improved it and made it big. but I think it was because mm. when you're doing art it's more like when you're a professional scientist you, it's more open ended you know you you can you can see it improving with different ideas and you can you can play with it whereas if you're just learning existing physics there, there are little bits of that but you know, you get to a stage where you've, you've cracked it and you can, you'll pass the exam or you... I, oh, I, yeah. I never yeah. wanted to get, uh, you know, the equivalent of much more than an A or an A minus. I didn't need an A plus. Like, mm. you know, I, di- I did well at school, but I didn't feel any impetus to sort of, you know, train myself to do things perfectly. Once I mm. got it, I'm like, okay, I get it. That, that'll do. Yeah, yeah. Whereas with art, it's like you can... You can keep going. It's yeah. just endless. So it's the same thing once once you once I finished kind of uni and started research yeah. is that it's all about the creative process and, and, and so Yeah. I can I can relate to that. I got really focused on um oh sorry. I set a little set a little alarm for myself so yeah. I would know the time so yeah, I wouldn't so because I've got to go pick my, my son up yeah, from school yeah, today. Yeah. Um, but I was just going to quickly say that was a good that was a really good answer by the way thank you for that <laughs> um, I got really fixated as a teenager on um, composing music I had a little music composing program oh, wow. yeah. and I don't know I, I just would get completely zoned in and just spend I'd just spend hours you know like note by note like you know composing something yeah and um they're all just like they're they're all just like funny sounding MIDI things, but I still kind of like them. <laughs> still kind of like you know. Um, well, yeah. I still have them. Oh great! I still have them. Yeah, 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 yeah. they still exist, and yeah. uh, there's still some parts of it. I'm like, no, oh, I like that. That's <laughs> all right. But I just was relating. The only reason yeah. I brought that up yeah. is like, I was just relating to like, yeah, there is something about art where um, you can just let yourself totally get drawn into it and yeah. keep keep building it and keep building it. Yeah. And. Uh, decide how baroque or not you want them to make it <laughs> to get back to that earlier earlier part of the conversation how about um this is maybe not as fun of a question but it's like what's something you've learned about a- academia and navigating academia mm-hmm. which is very different from just science you know mm-hmm. like navigating institutes and all the culture of of publishing and that sort of thing that yeah that you didn't know before like yeah So one of them, uh, just to give you some some seeds, Joellen Russell, um, her answer was, um, don't be afraid to ask your university for money because you'd be surprised, you know, what kind of pots of funding are sitting around that nobody's using and they just don't get used because nobody's using them. So she's like, go go ahead and ask for it. Like ask for the equipment and ask for the, you know, time to hire students because you might be, you might be surprised. Yeah, don't ask, don't get. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she had a very practical answer, you know, in in that way. Um, and, and I guess another, that's, so that's one possible direction to go. Mm. And I guess another direction to go would be something along the lines of like, like there is, there is like 
for better or for worse, there is a game element to it of yeah, yeah. you're going to be measured in certain ways. You're going to yeah. you know, you're going to have certain expectations. You know, your college and university, all the structures will kind of look at you in a certain way. Yeah. And I I find some of that stuff really challenging yeah. personally. You know, because we're often measured by publication count, or we're often yeah. measured by citations, or this yeah. god awful H index. Yeah, that yeah. I don't know why we did that to each other. Yeah. We're all like, let's come up with a number that we can all use to make each other feel bad <laughs> about how we're doing yeah. in life. Why do we do that? Yeah, um, I think I guess I guess there's a there's a there's a cynic in me that would say that one one thing about academia that I I don't know if it's academia or science or science and science publishing and metrics in general that I I don't like is how. And it's going to be very different in very different fields, but it's very faddish. It's mm. very, and and the the quality of research is not measured very well by the number of people citing, right. or, or even though it it seems logical to say, well, you're doing research that other people are making use of. Often, if if people decide that a certain area is is really exciting. They can, um, it, it can be self, it can, it can hold itself up, mm-hmm. but it might not actually be making an impact in the yes. outside of that. Because it depends on whether it's part of the current conversation or, or not. Yeah. 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 And, and I find that uh, very difficult. But at the same time, I think that the, 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 in terms of these metrics and things, the thing that I'm guided by is the fact that the metrics could change any day. That's true. Yeah. And they, they, you know, they're going to be random. Yeah. They're going to go in different directions. Yeah. But you, 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 one has to believe that they're going to, at some stage, be closer to what you believe is most valuable. So mm. at some point, they're going to measure better valuable science so if, mm. if i focus on doing science that i think is valuable and good then ultimately the metrics will and it's interesting how that it varies throughout your career so the beginning of your career you know you've, you've just done a, a phd people might measure you on how many papers you've written mm. because they're hard hard to write at, at first mm-hmm. and how people recommend you and then middle of your career it's like how many citations your papers have got on average. But then the end of your career, it's about whether you can definitively say how you changed the world. Hmm. And they're, very, they're all measuring very hmm. different things, right? And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's easier for me now that I have like tenure to say that I'm playing like a long game. Hmm. And ultimately that long game is what I objectively would like to do anyway, regardless if I get whether I get credit for it or not. I want to make the world better and do things that are useful and interesting to people. Um, so, so the metrics thing, yeah, you, you've got to play a game, but I think you should always be reverting to what you think is best because the, the rules will change. I mean, in that, where I work at the university now, it was only a few years ago where all the emphasis was on number of publications. Mm. And all of a sudden, the university's realized that it's fallen down the rankings because the rankings organizations are now interested in quality of publications. Whether or not they measure the quality very well, 
They don't care about numbers. In fact, bad publications, bad scientific outputs, actually, even if there's more of them, they actually reduce the... Mm. So a scientist who does three good publications or three bad publications is, is measured lower mm. than a scientist that just did three good ones, mm, right. which is, for me, a better way of measuring things. And the university is now frantically trying to re-educate everybody that they shouldn't be writing bad publications, which is bizarre because they shouldn't have been anyway. <laughs> oh, sorry, you know the thing we said? Uh, <laughs> forget, forget that. Yeah. yeah, no, that's right, because... You, you, if you just count people's papers, you incentivize them to, well, just throw it, throw it anywhere. Yeah. Throw anything anywhere. Anything anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it'll be fine. Until it sticks. You know. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And that's how you get a proliferation of. Um, yeah. Well, this is the you know International Journal of. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that we all get. <laughs> that we all get the uh, the daily emails for like please please publish in my you know yeah, yeah. this is a very yeah. specific you know International Journal. And you look up the publisher and it's some, you know, there's like, I don't know, it's in some it's shack somewhere. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm taking this too far. But <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, well, I, I really hate to like yeah. wrap it up. No, no, um, yeah, I, I feel like that was a really good answer. And I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, like, I, I, oh, I'm, I'm glad. Yeah, it's just uh, it's my day to go go pick up my kid yeah, from yeah, school yeah, so fine. he's gonna uh, need an adult there <laughs> to go you know, take him back to his house so um, I th- thanks thanks a lot for your Brilliant. time no worries thank you yeah I really appreciate yeah. it yeah I, and I really like what you're doing here Great. Thanks. Thanks. If you'll just say more of that directly into yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's He's filling yeah. a gap. He's a hero. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's a good place to end. Thanks. <laughs> there you have it. My conversation with Jan Zika. He's great, right? He's like a lot of uh, fun to talk to and really thoughtful and open. That was that was a really good one. Thanks again to Yan for stopping by for that conversation. You can find him on Twitter at Yan D Zika, J-A-N-D-Zika. And you can also look up his work there, which I would encourage you, especially if you are an oceanographer and somehow don't know about his work, have a scroll through those papers and see which, what you get inspired by. Okay, for updates on the podcast at ClimateSciPod, I'm at Dan Jones Ocean. And um, yeah, I don't really have any other announcements, so I've got some more of these planned, more of these uh, podcasts recorded, uh, or they're going to be recorded soon. So uh, I'll keep them out, coming out about once every month, the best that I can. I will keep plugging ahead. No other announcements. I say let's just let the music play. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Bye.